welcome to the Equip Institute as we uh, pick up with another week, our second week of our spring series on Christian belief. I was reviewing this earlier today and, and working on next week's uh, session earlier today, and I'm just so excited. Uh, y'all may not be that excited, and that's okay. I'm really excited uh, about these next few weeks. So by way of introduction, uh, you know what? Let's pray before we start talking about stuff. Wouldn't that be a good idea? Let's do that. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. And our prayer is that tonight and every night that we gather together, insofar as it's humanly possible, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to think your thoughts after you in a way that builds up our faith and that helps us to make a kingdom difference in the lives around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. Last week was our introduction to theology, setting the tone for this spring term as we talk about uh, Christian belief. Beginning tonight and for almost every Wednesday the rest of the spring, we're going to look at various doctrines and zero in on those doctrines one by one. And the session tonight is going to focus on the doctrine of Scripture. Now, sort of like last week, uh, some of you have heard me talk about some of these things before as we were previewing the types of topics that we were going to talk about in the Institute. But I promise that this is the last time I'm going to say that. Starting next week, none of you have heard me talk about anything before. But we do have one more week where, uh, where we're going to talk about it. And it's going to be, I think, a good helpful reminder to us, though, as we talk about the doctrine of Scripture. And uh, this week you're going to see the way that I like to uh, break down how we talk about the doctrine. I, I like to do it through a series of questions where we say, what's the big idea? What do the Scriptures teach? What has the church said? Different debates and how things have kind of fleshed out. How do we put it all together? And how then should we live? What's the, what's the takeaway? And, uh, and we're just going to kind of move through those questions tonight as we talk about the doctrine of Scripture. So we're going to begin with the big idea. God chooses to reveal Himself through a variety of means. We see this in the Bible, uh, but primarily it's in two ways, uh, through His mighty acts, there's different stories in the Scripture that tell us about that, and through His words. The latter, His words, include both audible words, sometimes, especially in Scripture, God speaks to someone audibly and they hear Him, but more often it's through His written words. And that's what we're going to focus on. The most important of God's words are the scriptures of the Old and New Testament because those are God's words that everybody has access to. That's not something that God said to that prophet way back then that only that prophet may have heard whether he recorded it or not. But this is God's words for everybody who has access to those words. The Bible represents God's words to all people, but it is especially His words to believers. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't matter for unbelievers, but what I'm saying is it's not until you become a believer that you can fully understand all the ways that the Bible matters. Does that make sense? So it is God's word for all people, whether they recognize it or not, but it is especially God's Word for those who love Him, are called according to His purposes, and who recognize that it's God's words. Now, historically, 
Baptists and other Protestants have made four key claims about the Bible. And I've up here on the whiteboard uh, kind of illustrated a little bit uh, with a diagram what we're going to talk about. First, the Bible is inspired. And what we mean by that is the Bible is literally God's words in written form, even though the Bible was written by dozens of different authors over a period of about a thousand years, we could add in at least three different languages originally. All those authors, all those years, different languages, but all those words are God's words. Some of you may remember that uh, that word inspiration uh, literally uh, would be translated that God has breathed out the Scriptures, just like we breathe out the words that we're speaking. Unlike every other book that has ever been written, the Bible is both a divine book, God's words, and it's a human book. The words of those men who wrote those words that were God's words. Second, the Bible is authoritative. Because these words are God's words, they carry with them God's authority. Some of you have children. And you know that whenever you tell children to do things, or you're setting boundaries for children, or you're giving children instruction, you're expecting them to listen to your words more than they listen to other words because you're their parent who is ultimately responsible for them and you have that authority and you're expecting them to listen to you and to trust you and something similar but greater is going on with the Lord. They're His words. They carry His authority. And part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is that we increasingly train ourselves to hear God's words louder and clearer than we hear all the other words around us, even other truthful and helpful words around us. God's words are the most important words because they carry His authority. And then flowing from that authority, number three, the Bible is trustworthy or truthful. Because God is holy and He doesn't lie, His words reflect His holy character. This means that the Bible is inerrant. It is without error. It speaks truthfully to all matters that it addresses. And we'll dig a little bit deeper into that idea in just a few minutes. And then also flowing from that authority, finally, the Bible is sufficient. The Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know. It does not tell you how to change the alternator in your car. It doesn't even tell you whether you can uh, give your child permission to go hang out with his friends or not. The Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know. But it tells us everything we need to know to become Christians and to continue to grow as followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we mean when we say it's sufficient. So that's the big idea. We'll talk about all of these, but any questions before we talk about what the Bible says about itself? Four ideas, and they're up here. On, you can see how they relate, and I've even added over there on the side, God's words reflect God's character. Let's talk about what those words say. In the Bible, sometimes the words and writings of people are also called God's words. The New Testament identifies the words of Old Testament prophets with God's words in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. It also argues that the entire Old Testament is God's words and that He breathed out into written form those words, 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. The Old Testament is alive with God's power and it changes 
people's lives. Hebrews 4.12 The New Testament also identifies itself with God's words, implying that the New Testament is inspired in the same way as the Old Testament. Colossians 4.16 and 2 Peter 3.15 and 16. I give you, by the way, lots of Scripture references, but I don't print the Scriptures out for you. Uh, that's a lot of paper. So you can bring a Bible with you or they're there for you to study on your own. We, we, every once in a while we'll print out a key verse, but trying to, uh, trying to save the trees as much as we can with some of that. Uh, here's the way to think about it. Remember the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, is the Bible that Jesus read. So when they come along, there is no doubt in any of the apostles' minds that the Old Testament is God's words. They believed that. What's really remarkable is that they begin to believe that some of these other writings are also God's words in the same way that the Old Testament is. Things like the Gospels and Acts, and the letters of Paul, and the letters of Peter, and James, and whoever wrote the book of Hebrews. What's remarkable is that they apply that same idea that God speaks, and His words are inspired, and authoritative, and truthful, and sufficient. They apply all of that to what we now call the New Testament. That's what would have been really remarkable if we could get back in a time machine and be there in those moments. Jesus argues that every word of the Old Testament is inspired, that He came to fulfill the Old Testament, that God's words will not pass away without accomplishing their purposes, and that God's words should be obeyed. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17 and 19. God's words are of everlasting authority. And they always perfectly accomplish God's intentions. We see that a couple of times in the book of Isaiah, at least. They were to be recorded. God's words were to be continually, continually meditated upon and passed down from generation to generation. We see that in Deuteronomy 6. Believers are to know God's words, obey God's words, and allow God's words to change our hearts and shape our actions. Psalm 119 is a, a beautiful reflection on those ideas. Believers are to trust the Bible because though it really is the words of men, they wrote that book. It is also the trustworthy word of the God who inspired those men to write it. And we'll actually talk about those two verses in a little bit more detail, or those two passages in just a few minutes. By the way, you may notice at this point, I'm rarely saying God's Word. I'm saying God's words. And I'm making that choice intentionally. I do think it's God's Word. But sometimes I think using the language of God's Word becomes just a little bit like lingo to us. It's just a synonym for the Bible. And that's not a bad thing. But I think when we stop and make ourselves say God's words, we're reminding ourselves that all of those words between those bindings or all of those words in that app on your phone are God's words. It's not just God's word, it's His words. And all of them are His words to us. We have all the words from God that we need in the Scripture. So we're not allowed to claim new words are God's words. Deuteronomy 4.2, Proverbs 35 and 6, and especially Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Now I want to stop there for a minute, anticipating a question that some of you may be wondering about, even if you're not going to ask it. What do we do with prophecy? Is there ongoing prophecy? Now, we're going to talk more about that in a later lesson, but let me just say this for a minute. I am not a charismatic or a Pentecostal, so you don't have to fire me. I have lots of friends who are charismatic and Pentecostals, 
and have read lots of works by Charismatics and Pentecostals. The soundest in their doctrine, Charismatics and Pentecostals are clear, that even though they believe God still speaks through prophecies to them, those words don't carry the same authority as God's words. And those words are judged according to God's words. So we need to uh, exercise theological hospitality, even to those we disagree with. And I'll talk about all my disagreements with that later. But, uh, but we don't want to accuse them of believing what they don't believe. And I'm not saying you're never going to have a Pentecostal friend who doesn't say that uh, whatever prophecy they think they've heard is just as important as the Bible. I'm telling you that's not official charismatic or Pentecostal teaching. They think God still speaks to people, even audibly, in ways that ought to be obeyed, maybe even to the whole church. But you judge those words by the Word of God, the written Word of God. We can't claim other new words or God's words in the same way that Scripture is God's words, even if we believe that in some form prophecy still continues. Scripture tells us how to become Christians and equips us for how to live before God once we've been saved. There's that 2 Timothy verse we're going to come back to. Though Scripture can be understood, some parts are more difficult to comprehend than others. I love 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, where he says, now this is the NIV, this is the Nathan International Version. He says, some of that stuff Paul writes is hard. I don't know what's going on there. Isn't it encouraging that even Peter occasionally came across things that he knew was Scripture and he said, I'm wrestling with that. I'm trying to figure that out. So everything in Scripture can be understood, but that doesn't mean that everything in Scripture is equally clear or written at the same uh, level for readers or things like that. There, there's some complicated stuff in Scripture. There's things that we wrestle with. Among God's new covenant people, that's us, the Holy Spirit lives within us and teaches us what the Scriptures mean and how to apply them. This is a great promise from Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. I didn't put that one down. Uh, also, 1 John 2.26. I want you to listen really closely. I am so glad that you are in here and that you've chosen to sit under this teaching. And I'm thankful, and I know you're thankful, to be a member of this church and to sit under the preaching Pastor Josh or whoever else is there. And we're thankful to sit under the teaching of our life group leaders and other teachers. But no matter who is up on the platform or behind the pulpit or has the open Bible in the circle leading the conversation, our teacher is ultimately the Holy Spirit. He's the one who helps us to understand God's Word. He's the one in the study with Josh Powell as he's preparing those sermons. He's the one opening our minds and our hearts as we hear and respond to God's Word. The Holy Spirit is our capital T teacher, even as He works through human teachers who He's gifted to help us understand what the Scriptures say. Though the Spirit is our ultimate teacher, Praise God, God also calls elders or pastors or overseers to teach His people how to better understand Scripture and defend biblical truth against false doctrine. We'll talk about this more in a later lesson, but there's slashes there, elder slash pastor slash overseer. I hold this loosely, it's debatable, but I believe those are three different ways to refer to the same pastoral office. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. That's, that's fuzzier than some things in Scripture. But, uh, but that's my personal conviction. It is what the Baptist tradition has historically said. I don't think it's right because Baptists say it. But I do personally think our tradition has gotten that right. But again, we'll talk about that a little bit later. 
are four key sub-doctrines, if you will, of inspiration, authority, trustworthiness, and sufficiency come together in three key New Testament passages. And I have reproduced these for you, I think, in the notes. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Or 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God's words coming through in men's words. Or John 17, 17. If you're looking for a short one to memorize, here you go. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's Jesus' high priestly prayer. The Lord Jesus Christ recognizes that God's word is truth. I don't think we have authorization to disagree with Jesus whenever it comes to, uh, to such matters. So any questions about this overview of what the Bible teaches about itself? Again, what we're going to do in a minute is talk about different debates, all the, all, not all of them, but some of the main views, and then we're going to try to bring it all back together and say, here's what the Bible says, here's how it's been debated, here's where we need to go with it. Man, y'all are quiet. Yeah. At what point, by that I mean general date, were New Testament writings and letters recognized as Scripture as in 2 Timothy 3.16? Yeah, that's a great question. At what point were the New Testament writings uh, recognized by the early church as Scriptures? And don't you love the way you asked the question? Not when did the church decide what Scripture? When did the church recognize what Scripture? So some of you may remember we talked about this, I think, in week two uh, of last semester. It was a gradual process, but it wasn't as gradual as our liberal friends like to say. They like to act like everything was kind of up in the air until around 400, and then a bunch of guys got together, a bunch of bishops, probably Constantine had something to do about it, and they voted on what scripture. That is not what happened. By the end of the first century, nearly every list we have includes the four Gospels, Acts, and the writings of Paul. And very early in the second century, it includes almost all of the other New Testament writings. And by 200, the lists are the same for the most part. There's occasionally a list that leaves a book out. There's occasionally a list that adds a book that the church later uh, recognizes is not inspired in the same way. But there's so much uniformity in those lists. And again, those writings about the life of Christ and those writings of Paul, there was almost no debate about that. The only real debate in the early church that even touches upon that is whether or not Paul wrote Hebrews or somebody else wrote Hebrews. But all the other stuff, 
the church was settled on very early on. This is Scripture. And just to be clear, when they said this is Scripture, what they meant is this is inspired in the same way that Genesis is inspired and Isaiah is inspired and the Psalms are inspired and Daniel's inspired because there was no debate about those things being inspired among the earliest Christians. Thank you for that question. Any others? All right. I'm going to try not... Yeah. Late on the draw, it's okay. So uh, I've heard it said many times, well, the church didn't decide the Bible's canon until 325. And yeah. So, so we, can, we would reject that argument on the basis that those lists were being drawn up as early as 100. That's a great question. So it's often said that it's actually 325 at the Council of Nicaea whenever the church uh, decides what the canon is. Um, I've heard that too. Even more common, it's a little bit later than that. And they're saying it's more like in the 380s whenever the church decides at a, at a council. So two things can be true at the same time. It can be true that all the recognized bishops come together and take a formal vote and say that's the canon, because that did happen. And it can be true that for many decades and for most of the New Testament, many centuries before that, they had already made that decision organically. And when they came together, they were just taking a vote on what they already knew. So people who make that argument often act like they created something out of nothing. Oh, look at all those books out there. I think these are the ones that are inspired. What they did is they just gave official voice to what everybody already believed. These books are God's words. Those other books, some of them are good books, but they're not God's words. Some of them are bad books. Y'all stop reading them. Both of those things can be true at the same time. Speaking of the church, let's talk about what the church has said. I'm going to try really hard every week not to be overly nerdy as we talk about all these debates. The early church considered the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament to be inspired. We were just alluding to this a minute ago. Those books were canonized through an informal process, pretty organic, between about 100 and 400 A.D., no orthodox theologians, I'm not saying nobody, but no orthodox theologian questioned the inspiration, authority, or truthfulness of Scripture until after the Reformation. So this is important. Even during the Reformation, Catholics and Protestants agreed that the Bible is inspired and authoritative and truthful. There were other things they didn't agree on, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But nobody was questioning that it was inspired, authoritative, and truthful. During the Middle Ages, however, the Catholic Church introduced several innovations into the doctrine of Scripture that undermined the Bible's sufficiency. First, the Church increasingly believed that the Old Testament Apocrypha is also inspired Scripture. We talked about that a little bit last semester. Those books that were written uh, for the most part during the couple hundred years before the time of Christ, uh, talking about uh, old, uh, the history, history that overlaps with Old Testament, Old Covenant believers. Uh, many in the Catholic Church came to believe that they were Old Testament uh, they were part of the Old Testament. Although that didn't become official until the Reformation for the Catholic Church. Many people believed it. Second, and this is probably more controversial, Catholics embraced what I call a dual authority model as they gradually looked to church tradition as an authority equal to and complementing biblical authority. Now, this is what the Catholic Church never officially said. 
And sometimes we get this wrong. I'm not saying anybody in this room, but sometimes we Protestants get this wrong. The Catholic Church has never officially said tradition corrects Scripture. But what they have said is the same Holy Spirit who worked in those biblical writers to produce the Scriptures continues to work through the teaching ministry of the Catholic Church to produce tradition that is consistent with and complements that Scripture. Does that make sense? So that's different than what we talked about last week, isn't it? We talked last week about how tradition is very valuable, but it is of a secondary authority under Scripture. Our Catholic friends officially believe they are dual authority, and they argue that from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that goes back to the Middle Ages. These views placed the power of biblical interpretation into the hands of the clergy and undermined the ability of ordinary Christians to read and study the Bible for themselves. I think that many of you would be shocked if you fully understood how recently it is in Christian history that personal reading of the Bible was recovered. It only started to happen in the 1500s. And it was only common into the 1700s that regular Christians owned copies of the Bible that they could read in their own language. It was just a radical idea. Um, I have a pastor I know who tells the story of uh, giving a talk on the Puritans. He was actually doing a doctorate in Cambridge. He was speaking uh, at a church in Cambridge and he was talking about the Puritans and he said it was not uncommon for Puritan ministers to preach for 90 minutes to two hours. And there was a Q&A after his talk, a lady raises her hand and she says, how did they sit still that long and listen to a sermon for two hours. And his response was, because they could remember a time not that long ago when they had never heard the Bible in a way that they could understand. And they'd never read the Bible in their everyday language. It was new to them, and they drank it up relatively recently in church history that we've had that sort of access to the Bible in our own languages in a way that we could understand it. And that was not the way things were during the Middle Ages. The Reformation becomes a key turning point for the doctrine of Scripture. While both Catholics and Protestants affirmed that the Bible was inspired and truthful, they disagreed over whether or not tradition is also inspired and perfectly trustworthy. Furthermore, Catholics and Protestants disagreed completely about biblical authority and sufficiency. Catholics continued to affirm the dual authority model that undermined the sufficiency of Scripture, while Protestants argued for something some of you have heard before, sola scriptura, Latin for Scripture alone. The idea that the Bible alone is the supreme authority for faith and practice. It is the authority that trumps every other lesser authority, even often good lesser authorities like tradition. And this continues to be a point of division between Catholics and Protestants. It's a fork in the road, and that fork is still there. Catholics would still believe these things. Protestants would still say, Scripture alone is our supreme authority. The Enlightenment was another turning point in the doctrine of Scripture. From the mid-1600s on, skeptics questioned how a human book could also be a divine book. 
many philosophers argued that the Bible is inspired, note I put that in quote marks, inspired in the sense that Shakespeare or Bach might be considered inspired, but not God-breathed because fallible humans wrote it. Here's what they would say. The Bible is undoubtedly inspiring. It moves us. Many of them would even say it moves us because God uses it and blesses it. But what they wouldn't say is that the Bible is God's words because it's man's words and men muck it up. Men aren't perfect. God wouldn't condescend to speak through men with all their faults and all their foibles. They questioned the Bible's supernatural origins and rejected its factual accuracy, especially in matters of history and science, what we would now call history and science. Theologically liberal Protestants and Catholics embraced the Enlightenment view of Scripture. The Enlightenment view was reinforced by two trends that became popular in the 19th century. Higher criticism of the Bible and Darwinian evolution. Now you know what Darwinian evolution is. Let me talk about higher criticism of the Bible. That was where instead of studying the text of Scripture, a growing number of scholars wanted to know the story behind the story. And they moved the authority and the meaning from the words that were written to whatever they think was going on in the lives of the men or the communities or the traditions that produced those Bibles. Does that make sense? So they're, they're wanting to get behind the text instead of the text. They're questioning whether we can trust the Bible in light of the things we're discovering about history and the things that we think we're discovering about science. Darwinian evolution is all the rage. It doesn't take very long for people to say, even behind pulpits, not skeptics, but pastors, seminary professors, Sunday school teachers. Oh, the Bible is certainly inspiring, but it's not inspired in the way that the church used to believe. We've outgrown that old-fashioned idea. Some of you have been taught this before. I'm curious for a show of hands, did anybody go to the sort of college or university or grow up in the sort of church where this is the way that they talked about the Bible? Anybody at all? This was my experience. Until I was in high school, our family was part of a uh, mainline liberal Protestant denomination where we did not hear the gospel and where the ministers who were good men did not believe the Bible was inspired. And then I went off to a college that is a Bible-believing college now, but I was there when it was going through the transition. And none of our professors even a couple of them who, I'm, who I still love very much as human beings and as friends, none of them would say God's Word is inspired, authoritative, truthful, and sufficient without an asterisk and a lot of but, 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 or what we really mean is. Many Christian traditions experienced controversy over Scripture in the 20th century as these new ideas took hold in churches. In the 1920s and 1930s, the major northern denominations split between those who called themselves fundamentalists and those who called themselves modernists. The former, the fundamentalists, affirmed inerrancy that the Bible is truthful. The latter rejected that doctrine, said it's not. In the 1960s and the 1970s, our Presbyterian friends here in the South and Midwestern Lutherans went through the same fight. 
once again dividing between those who believed in biblical inerrancy and those who did not. Between 1979 and 2000, Southern Baptists endured a significant controversy that was at least in part over biblical inerrancy, with inerrantists gaining control of the SBC's agencies and boards. Now, how many of you have been at Taylor's or other Baptist churches long enough that you remember some of that? A bunch of you remember some of that, right? Still makes the news every once in a while. Because of these different inerrancy debates at different times that really, again, start in the English-speaking world in the mid-1800s, in 1978, over a hundred evangelical scholars came together and they drafted something called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, a document that re-articulated the historic Christian view of biblical truthfulness in a way that speaks to the contemporary world. The Chicago Statement argues several things. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but let me just for one moment, again, maybe anticipating a question. It's sometimes said, has the church always believed in inerrancy? Because I heard someone say, that's a more recent word. Again, sometimes two things can be true at the same time, just like with canonization. The church has always affirmed that the Bible is fully trustworthy. Inerrancy is a modern way of arguing for that historic belief. Does that make sense? So when somebody says, that's a new word, nobody used that word until the mid-1800s. Guess what? Nobody used that word until the mid-1800s. Although some people who spoke other languages used words that could be translated into inerrancy in their language, but it wasn't always used. But inerrancy is a modern way of summarizing what almost all Christians in almost all places believed in almost all of church history until very recently. God's Word can be trusted because God's character is trustworthy. And that's what inerrancy says. So this is what those scholars came together and said. And these are conservative Bible-believing scholars. So they're trying to explain what does inerrancy mean and what does it not mean, because the word can be a little confusing sometimes. So number one, the original autographs or the initial manuscripts, what was written down originally, are totally free from factual errors because the God who inspired them is completely trustworthy and He never lies. Number two, we don't have any of those. So number two, the available manuscripts of the Bible upon which our modern translations are based are completely without error to the degree that they accurately reflect that original text. There's no reason to question their fundamental accuracy because the older and older the manuscripts we discover, the more and more they look like the ones that we've had. And even when there are inconsistencies, they are minor inconsistencies of wording and punctuation and capitalization and those sorts of things, not ideas that are being changed. Does that make sense? It's things that get missed along the way as things were copied by hand. Number three, the Bible is without error even when it speaks to history and science. But because it is not a book specifically about history or science, that's not what it was written for, it does not speak with the degree of precision modern people expect from textbooks on those matters. The Bible is not a history textbook. The Bible is not a science textbook. But the Bible does not speak untruthfully when it speaks to things that we today call history and science. Does that make sense? But it's not as specific in how it talks about those things as modern man might want it to be. And we just need to recognize it's an ancient book written by other people in other cultures that was addressing other things, but it is historically accurate. And it is compatible with science rightly defined. 
Number four, inerrancy is not negated by phenomena such as figurative language, observational language, round numbers, hyperbole or exaggeration, grammatical errors, Mark has a lot of those, topical rather than chronological arrangements of events, the recorded false statements of humans, or free citation. These are matters of precision, not truthfulness. Let me give you a real-life example that used to be a very common village atheist sort of argument. Well, the Bible is not inerrant because it says that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, and we know now that that's not the way the world works. The earth orbits around the sun. Okay. Does it appear by human observation that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west? That's an example of what we're talking about. It's using observational language. Or sometimes they'll say, well, the Bible is not inerrant because sometimes it says in 2 Chronicles that there were 10,000 soldiers. But there weren't 10,000 soldiers on the dot. It was probably... 9,849 soldiers. Okay. Is it a common use of language to round up or round down whenever we're talking about numbers? So a lot of these are those sorts of things that folks would nitpick about and they would kind of move the goalposts and say the Bible's not inerrant because of that. Or they'd say things like the Bible's not inerrant because it's filled with lies. Well, actually, the Bible is filled with lies. It truthfully records the lies that certain people tell in the Bible. Like Satan. Or like various bad guys who say things. Yes, the Bible actually has lots of lies. But it records those lies accurately. Again, moving the goalposts to try and nitpick and say that the Bible's not truthful. Or there's a few times in the New Testament where New Testament writers say, like it says in Hosea, and it'll be something from, I'm, I'm making this not a literal example, you know, it'll be something from chapter 3 in Hosea and chapter 7 in Hosea, and like combining two different things into one idea. And they'll go, ha ha, it's not truthful. Well, Hosea said both of those things. He's just bringing two ideas together and communicating it and giving kind of a general quotation from Hosea, moving the goalposts to try and make the Bible not truthful. Finally, number five, inerrancy is not negated by erroneous interpretations. These are the fault of the interpreter, not the Bible. So people will sometimes say, well, how could the Bible be true because the Baptists say we ought to dunk people and the Methodists say we ought to sprinkle people? Well, that has nothing to do with whether the Bible is truthful or not. That has to do with different Christians debating about what the true Bible means. It's not about the Bible's truthfulness. That's about us getting our interpretations right. So this document has been very, very helpful pastors and Bible teachers because it helps us to answer honest questions that people ask. Because whenever we use words like inerrant, sometimes we want the Bible to be more precise than it was intended to be. We want it to read like a history textbook. We want all those numbers to be the exact amount. But that's not how ancient literature worked. And when we understand how ancient literature worked, the Bible is truthful. There is nothing misleading in the Bible. The Bible does not deceive us. The Bible does not lead us astray. The Bible is God's words. Any questions about these ideas that have been debated throughout Christian history related to Scripture? You're going to open it up, aren't you? But I'm, just, I'm just sitting here thinking, okay, we look at modern 
church of churches, denominations, going very liberal, you know, in a social way, sexuality, all these things yeah. that are on the scene right now. And I'm thinking, okay, how did this idea of inerrancy and or not believing in inerrancy going back 40 years, 50 years, is that what started this? Is that what leads to us, a denomination just saying, you know, we don't really believe this is such a great question. So what is maybe what's the relationship between uh, denying inerrancy and embracing other bad doctrines and uh, bad ethical views and things like that? So here's the way I like to talk about this. How many of you have ever heard the phrase slippery slope fallacy before? Right? The reason that the slippery slope is a logical fallacy is because it's never inevitable that if you're on the slope, you're going to slide down. Now, let me ask you a question. Are some slopes slippery? Doesn't mean every single person who steps on the slope is going to slide down to the bottom. But there's enough people that slide that we can see a trend. So when it comes to the inerrancy of Scripture... Can you believe that the Bible has factual errors, especially minor factual errors that don't really change the meaning and still in every other way be orthodox and, and not get into trouble? Yes, I think that's possible. Is that normally what happens? No, I don't think that's normally what happens. I think normally what happens is it begins to wear away at your trustworthiness, at your belief in the trustworthiness of the claims of Scripture. And then sin gets involved. And there's somebody that you want to sleep with, but the Bible says you can't sleep with that person. Or there's an ethical compromise that you want to make, but the Bible says you can't make that ethical compromise. Or there's a decision that you want to make, but the Bible says you shouldn't make that decision. And then you start saying, did God really say? Just like the serpent did. I think it is possible to really love the Lord and be wrong about inerrancy. But I think it is often the case that being wrong about the truthfulness of Scripture opens the door to all kinds of other errors. And that is certainly what happens over time. So even more often what you see is the grandparent generation says, this isn't that big a deal. And the parent generation says, I'm not sure about that. And the grandchild generation says, I don't believe that. It's not inevitable, but it is a very common trajectory. It is exceedingly rare to find people who are wrong on those sorts of issues like gender and sexuality, for example, who have a truly high view of Scripture. They may say they do, but when you drill down, at some point they're saying, did God really say? And when we start saying, did God really say, we're acting diabolically, even if that's not our intention. That's what's happening. It's a great, it's a hard question. But it's a great question. I'm, uh, I'm in my mid-40s. I am uh, right in the middle of that generation. Now, you probably, some of you are much older than me, and you know people like this too, but I'm just telling you, half the people that I know from college, and even some I know from seminary, who loved the Lord and who were soul winners, and who were sound in their doctrine 
are making epically bad decisions now about doctrinal matters. And it is often, though not always, because they want to do something that sound doctrine won't let them do. Any other questions before we talk about some practical application? Well, what we should believe in some practical application. So what should we believe? The written by men, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Bible is also the inspired words of God. Because of God's holy character and His great love for humanity, the Bible is a trustworthy and sufficient word from God. The Bible is our supreme authority for faith and practice and the standard by which all lesser authorities are to be judged. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 offers an excellent brief confessional summary of the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, I'm just going to read it quickly. The Holy Bible was, in, was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of Himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ who is Himself the focus of divine revelation. I think that is an excellent statement on the doctrine of Scripture. So how should we then live? For the sake of time, let me just say this. What you think about Scripture affects what you think about everything. But we're just going to focus on four things real quick. First, Scripture plays a central role in our spiritual formation as believers. Healthy spirituality has always been shaped primarily by reading, memorizing, and meditating on the words of the Bible. It is no accident and it is a good thing that the most common devotional practice in churches like ours among people like us is regular daily quiet times. Reading and reflecting on the Bible and praying about what you're reading and reflecting on. And another common practice, family worship or family devotions or family Bible studies where families study the Scripture together. These are healthy spiritual practices. Number two, Scripture plays a central role in the health of local churches. Protestants appeal to the Bible as our ultimate authority in church life, even when we disagree amongst ourselves sometimes about the best ways to interpret it. Listen, the proclamation of the Bible through preaching, prayer, song, and even the ordinances enliven every element of our corporate worship gatherings. Our church's discipleship strategy is built around engagement with the Word. Pastor Jeremy loves to talk about that. The spiritual flourishing of our church is intimately related to our conformity to the Scriptures and what they teach. Number three, Scripture plays a central role in evangelism and discipleship. The plan of salvation is communicated through the Scriptures, which tell us faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ in Romans 10, 17. And this is why evangelism normally involves some combination of reading the Bible or quoting or paraphrasing the Bible or handing somebody a gospel tract that includes Bible citations. People come to faith in Christ when they are engaged with the words of Scripture. And certainly, it is the most important book in our discipleship journey. Lots of good books out there. None of them top the Scriptures. And the other good books are only good to the degree they're conforming to the Scriptures. Finally, we need to be willing to defend the doctrine of Scripture. Even as we seek to understand the Bible's teachings and pass them on to others, Every single claim I've made today is debated in our culture. 
There's nothing I've said that's not hotly debated. And David, to get to your question a minute ago, when confidence in Scripture erodes spiritual formation, church health, gospel advance, all begin to wither on the vine. They all begin to wither on the vine. Remember, everyone's a theologian. We talked about that last week. And good theologians are first and foremost students of the Scriptures. And so it's important for pastors and other teachers, even if you're the assistant teacher in the kindergarten life group, it's important for us to understand the Scriptures, to pass on the Scriptures, and to defend the Scriptures whenever they're critiqued or whenever folks are challenging these ideas on the whiteboard. So let me give some recommended resources as we go over a minute. Uh, first, I'll do this almost every week. The Gospel Coalition has a bunch of great theological essays about the Bible. So if you just want to go online, a lot of good stuff there. Kevin DeYoung's book, Taking God at His Word, is my favorite popular introduction to the doctrine of Scripture. And some of you have heard me say this before. You will never waste your time reading Kevin DeYoung. Everything he writes is good stuff. Even, even the 3% of the time I think he's wrong, I like the way he's wrong about stuff. So it's good stuff. Uh, Mark Thompson's The Doctrine of Scripture and Introduction is a great college-level sort of introduction to Scripture. Uh, David Dockery and Malcolm Yarnell have a book that's coming out in a couple of months, but that I've read already called Special Revelation and Scripture. It is a great seminary-level introduction if you're the sort of person who says, I don't want that college stuff, give me the seminary stuff. And then for those of you who are really, really, really brave and like the scholarly meat, Blake, I would recommend D.A. Carson's The Enduring Authority of Christian Scriptures. You're also never going to waste your time reading anything that D.A. Carson has written, especially if he's writing about the Scriptures. So I know we've gone over a couple of minutes, and if you need to go, you're welcome to. But does anybody have any closing questions or thoughts? I'm happy to stick around for another two or three minutes, even up here in front of the whole group. Any questions? A little bit of a question. Yeah. Yeah. For most of that time, I wasn't church because I wasn't saved. Can you give me an example of what was going on? Oh, gosh. I mean, quickly. Woo! What happened in 1979 and 2000? Mark, are you going to teach on that? Mark already taught on that. 1979 to 2000, um, Southern Baptist theological conservatives who believed in the truthfulness of Scripture recaptured the leadership of our denomination from those who had waffled on that issue or were cooperating with people who had waffled on that issue. And... Uh, all of our seminaries were brought back to teaching the inerrancy of Scripture. Our two mission boards began to more consistently require that of missionaries again. And our uh, Lifeway Christian Resources that does the Sunday school literature and whatnot uh, began to require that people be theologically conservative to write. Uh, we had not become a liberal denomination, but we were drifting. And folks said, we've got to stop drifting. There was a lot more that went on, just like any of these. There were personalities, and there were politics, and there were preferences, and other stuff too. But there really was an honest-to-goodness, legitimate debate over whether or not we should affirm biblical inerrancy, and if we should, how should that affect uh, especially our seminaries and our colleges and what's being taught to future generations of ministers. If you don't remember anything else, remember this, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Y'all have a great week.
Oh, oh, Jeremy's got something. That's great. Next week, we'll remind everybody of that at the beginning of the recording, too. Y'all have a great week.